You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Greg, a very happy almost spring to you. An almost spring. Yeah, it's yes. been an odd season, hasn't it? It hasn't really felt either like winter, and it certainly doesn't feel like spring now. Regardless of the weather, Greg, spring officially begins this Monday, and we're releasing today's show on St. Patrick's Day. And how appropriate, because today's show, which was originally released in 2017 and has been re-edited and slightly reworked, is on the history of Irish immigration to New York City. And, and really, to the entire United States. This is a great one, and a topic that feels even more relevant than it did several years ago. Mm-hmm. Today, of course, there is a sizable Irish presence in almost every major American city. Boston, Philadelphia. I mean, Tom, they still dye the river green in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> For St. Patrick's Day. But in the 19th century... New York City had by far the largest Irish population in the United States, and it really was the center of Irish-American life. Today, obviously, New York is still very, very Irish, even though we don't dye our rivers green. I mean, sometimes the Gowanus River is green, but that is a different story, and that's year-round. Because it's a super fun site, Greg. And every year, New York feels especially Irish on St. Patrick's Day, of course, because of its annual parade, which first marched through the city in 1762. So that's 261 years ago. To quote from New York's official St. Patrick's Day parade website, quote, The first New York City St. Patrick's Day parade was comprised of a band of homesick Irish expatriates and Irish military members serving with the British Army stationed in the colonies in New York. This was a time when the wearing of green was a sign of Irish pride, but was banned in Ireland. In that 1762 parade, participants reveled in the freedom to speak Irish, wear green, sing Irish songs, and play the pipes to Irish tunes that were meaningful to the Irish immigrants of that time. 
But another reason that I am personally excited to be revisiting this show today, Tom, is that since recording this episode back in 2017, I've personally learned so much more about my own genealogy, thanks to my uncle David, who basically has filled out all the dark corners of our family tree on that side of the family. I'm actually Scotch-Irish on both sides of the family, which is amazing because that's the history that I discuss in the following show, not realizing at the time how Scotch-Irish I really was. Whoa, (laughs) this just got kind of meta, Greg. (laughs) And we'll be discussing more of our family trees a bit in, in next week's episode of Side Streets, our patron-only podcast where we get a little bit more personal and apparently we'll be branching out into our family trees. And who knows, maybe some of the listeners will realize that they're related to us as well. (laughs) You'll be able to find that on patreon.com slash Boys with all the other episodes of Side Streets. But first, enjoy this show celebrating the history of the Irish in New York. Okay, so before we even get started here, Greg, it seems like we need to understand even the limits of what today's show is, because the subject is massive. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, We are putting one particular limit on this program, and that is we are going to end it in the 1920s, 1930s. Of course, the story of the Irish in New York continues, and in fact, maybe the rest of that story would make an ideal podcast for later. Right. And where are we starting the show? Because I guess the main thrust of it takes place sort of in the mid-19th century. Well, there have been Irish in this country for almost 400 years. There were even a few Irishmen as part of the original settlement of New Amsterdam. However... I'm going to kind of speed ahead here and begin our story in colonial New York, right before the Revolutionary War. And I guess you can skip the part where you situate us about what is Ireland or where is Ireland. <laughs> well, hopefully, We're everyone, assuming people know. Hopefully everyone knows where Ireland is located. And, and if you don't, just... Look it up. (laughs) A quick Wikipedia will uh, get you up to speed. But I'm going to start our tale in colonial New York in the 1720s, which is the first real significant number of Irish who crossed the Atlantic Ocean to arrive in the colonies. Interestingly, part of the reason that there was an increased back and forth with Ireland at this time was in America, they were now exporting flax seed. And in Ireland, there was a huge linen industry. So because there were greater transportation options between these two countries at that time, more Irish than came over at that period. I'm sorry, this is a stupid question, perhaps, but flaxseed is integral to the production of linen. Of linen, yes, correct. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm not really up on my <laughs> linen details. Or your flaxseed knowledge, sure. Right. It begins with the dozens and then the hundreds of immigrants, and then by the 1770s, right before the Revolutionary War, it would be thousands of immigrants, Irish immigrants, into this country. Which would soon become the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, were most of these settlers... Catholic? No, no, it's interesting because when people talk about Irish immigration, it's always from the perspective of Irish Catholics. But especially in the colonial period, 
most of those who came over are what we would today call Scots-Irish from Ulster, the area of today's Northern Ireland. And the Scots-Irish were not Catholic. Right. They were Protestants. So most of the Irish who came over during this period were Protestants, not Catholic, because, of course, naturally, Catholics weren't even allowed to practice their faith until after the Revolutionary War. So given this connection with trade here, this unique connection with trade, it's not surprising that many of them, many of the Irish who came over were merchants and sailors, but a great many more came over as servants in the form of indentured servitude. Now, you're not talking about domestic servants or domestic help here, are you? Well, most of them would be domestic help, but it's kind of the form in which they came over, which was very different. Essentially, an indentured servant is someone who would come over to this country with their voyage paid for in exchange for being a servant or a laborer of some kind in the homes and farms of the colonies. Believe it or not, over a half or even two-thirds of the Irish who came over during this period were as indentured servants. Now, this could be a very harsh way to come over. You could be indentured for many, many years, and you had great restrictions on your personal life. So your voyage over was sponsored, but there were strings attached. There were a lot of strings attached. it could be quite a horrible experience being indentured to someone because uh, you couldn't get married, for instance, and sometimes you would be penalized and your duration of servitude could be extended if, say, you got pregnant, for instance. Uh-huh. Now, this is, though, in, in no way analogous, of course, to the black slave trade, which is also happening here. In many homes, in many farms, in, in many situations, you would have enslaved people working next to indentured servants, working by people who were just hired laborers Mm -hmm. in situations. So it was a a big mix, and it was also a quite different colony to colony. But New York City did have a lot of indentured servants during this time. Just after the Revolutionary War. Right. Now let's flash forward past the war, which, I mean, I hate to do, I have to say, because many Irishmen fought and served to win America's independence. Many fought on the other side as well, actually. And, you know, after all, Ireland would be having its own struggles with England at this time. There were already enough Irish immigrants in New York before the war that they had a very small but significant role in local politics, with politicians even currying favor, even at that time, Mm -hmm. in certain instances. In fact, after the war, Uh, The first mayor of New York City, James Duane, was the son of an Irish naval officer. Okay, so it's after the war in New York, and there are, at this point, thousands of Irish immigrants living in the city. Thousands, right. And almost all of them Protestant. Right, but a growing number of them, by this time, would be Catholic. It's around this time, in 1785, in fact, that the construction of New York's first Catholic church would be around this time on Barclay Street, St. Peter's Church. Oh, is that the same St. Peter's that still stands today? Well, it's not. That's a newer construction. However, it's on that very spot where the original St. Peter's was. Now, many of the reasons that the Irish would later be demonized in the 19th century, and even during this period, was because of their faith, in particularly of those who practiced Catholicism. There was great distrust for Catholics 
Many considered them to practice anti-American rituals, and their obsequience to the foreign pope, of course, was was greatly concerning. Also tying into this, of, of course, is that these Irish who came over were, were mostly quite poor and of lower social status. And so that even by the early 19th century, they were already seen as a scourge, as a body, both Irish Protestants and Catholics, even though a lot of this baggage was aimed at Irish Catholics. So thus, as the 19th century gears up to be one of massive immigration, the nation and New York in particular are already on guard here. In fact, on Christmas night of 1806, a set of anti-Catholic rioters attempted to burn down St. Peter's. And in this ensuing melee, a watchman by the name of Christopher Luswinger was killed. He, he was a night watchman, like a New York policeman. Right. Before they actually had the police, the police department, mm-hmm. they had people who were watchmen who served a variety of different duties. However, today he is marked as the very first New York police officer killed in the line of duty. Wow. Peter Luswinger. Luswinger. Okay, but pretty soon, in the early 1800s, New York is starting to experience a lot of growth. Yes, thanks largely with the construction of something that would change all of the United States, and that is the Erie Canal, that artificial waterway that connected the Hudson River with Lake Erie, and of course, by extension, with the entire interior of the new country. And this would transform, as we've discussed before, the city's economy because it would make New York sort of the middleman mm-hmm. between uh, the fields of the Midwest and uh, and overseas. Everything would everything could pass through New York. Yeah. But what an undertaking to build this thing. Well, yeah, it was the largest project in the United States up to that time, and so required many more laborers to build this. And so by the late 1810s and early 1820s, thousands more Irish workers came over, and many of them who worked on the canal and settled in towns around the canal, but many more came back to New York. And these were mostly men who came over to to dig on the canal? Yes. So this d- distinguishes it from later waves of immigration in that it is mostly Irish men at this time. So between 1820 and 1830, it's over 50,000 new Irish residents to the United States. Now, this is not that much in comparison to later waves. Sure, but, but 50,000. I mean, the city was going through a boom, but that was yeah. largely fueled by these arrivals, and the canal itself opened in 1825. Thus transforming uh, New York's financial fortunes. With many more wealthier people living in New York, wealthier people in finer homes, who of course create a need for more servants and house staff, this is where you then get a lot of Irish women immigrating Mm -hmm. into New York City. In 1826, almost 60% of all servants in New York were Irish, and so many of them were Irish women who had just arrived during this decade. So you have thousands of men coming over to dig the canal and other projects, Mm -hmm. and women coming over mostly to work as domestic help. So it sounds like these were positions at the lower end of the social ladder. Yeah, not high-paying jobs. As a result, they were often forced to live in some of the worst housing in New York. Now, by the 1830s, what that meant 
as one example, for there were many there were many neighborhoods around here where the iris settled at this period, but perhaps the one that's best known is the one that was formerly called Paradise Square, right. which then kind of sunk into old Click Pond, into the bog, and the buildings became very horrible to live in, and thus was renamed, or we know today as Five Points. Right, and this area is just to the northeast of City Hall today, sort of along Worth Street, kind of, you know, down the block from where people get married today in mm-hmm. Columbus yes, Park. around there. So that's where they settled. Did Were they alone in this neighborhood? No, well, no, they were living with other people in similar economic and social positions, which in this period meant the African Americans that lived in New York City. So the the newly arrived Irish and the African Americans lived side by side in these old row houses mm-hmm. that were sort of, were chopped up and so they could move more people into them. And if we're talking 1830s, this is really before the tenements took off, mm-hmm. um, where you really had row houses that had been constructed primarily for one family, uh, but then were subdivided uh, by floor, and then even the floors divvied up into rooms, really, to, mm-hmm. to accommodate one family. So these were not great living conditions. No. So imagine just a sort of a, a mix of different types of people who lived in squalor. And and things will only get worse down here as the decades progress. And not just in the working conditions, but also in the tensions between the Irish immigrants and the African Americans at this time. They would, in some ways, at least here at the very beginning, uh, kind of work together in in positive ways, but soon a lot of the racial tensions would be laid bare, and as the city would grow larger, they would erupt in very deadly ways. Because they weren't just competing for housing here. They would also increasingly be competing for jobs. Yeah. And I, I shouldn't really even say, oh, things were so rosy in the 1830s. By no means. In fact, uh, there were a series of anti-abolitionist riots in the summer of 1834, which really laid bare the tension here, with many new Irish arrivals actually aligning with anti-abolitionists in targeting blacks and abolitionists. It was a sort of a strange mix of allegiances that was mm. happening back then. Most of the violence at this time was aimed at anti-abolitionist churches. And as, as you'll see throughout this story, churches are targets for a lot of the violence in this period. Well, speaking of churches, so you already mentioned St. Peter's Catholic Church, uh, but with a growing Catholic population here, I'm assuming that they had to construct more. Well, yeah, I'm going to take you to the corner of Mulberry and Prince, which in 1815 is actually quite sparse, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Uh, This is where the second Catholic church in New York City would be built, St. Patrick's Cathedral. It served New York's Catholic population, which by 1825, a decade after its construction, had grown to 35,000 Catholics. Wow, 35,000 Catholics. You didn't say 35,000 Irish Catholics. No, of course, there are other groups that are practicing Catholics. In particular, there are a lot of German Catholics at this time. But keep in mind the name of the church here. St. Patrick's Patrick's. Cathedral. St. Patrick was an Irish bishop. So this church actually becomes imprinted with the Irish spirit of the early 19th century. It's a new focal point for the community and also a target for anti-Catholic sentiments and then by extension, anti-Irish sentiments. Which I'm assuming are only growing as more Irish Catholics are arriving. 
The, uh, regrettably, that is the case, which requires then the Irish themselves to kind of circle the wagons a little bit and, and to unite and protect each other and also to be proud of their heritage. By this time, they needed institutions and ceremonies that said, we're not ashamed of who we are or what we believe. Now, the St. Patrick's Day Parade was already 50 years old by the 1820s. Really? Yeah. So it, it had started in the 1700s? Yeah, but it was a military parade. So what happened then post-war is it morphs into a day of national Irish pride and a consolidation for civilians, you know, fueled by a lot of Irish fraternal organizations that formed at this time. Now, the year 1836 is a very important one for Irish New York for both good and bad reasons. It was in this year that the Irish Catholic fraternal group, the Ancient Order of the Hibernians, was formed. And it was formed at the third Roman Catholic church in New York City, St. James. St. James. I think we put that in the book, right? That's in sort of the Lower East Side, but far, far south. Yeah, like a little south even of Chinatown in the neighborhood they call Two Bridges. It's one of my favorite kind of low-key landmarks, and the street in front of it, although it is referred to as St. James Place, does have a street sign that says Ancient Order of the Hibernians still on it. Right. So. Who were these Hibernians? Well, they they were a more vocal Irish fraternal group that were a lot more proactive in protecting and helping the community here. Years of anti-Irish sentiment were fomenting greater than ever in the form of nativism, which I believe you're going to touch into Mm -hmm. a little bit more. Which, generally speaking, is just a fear of foreigners or belief that foreigners should get out of the government or out of the public life and that, um, in short, incredibly anti-immigrant. This is unfortunately not an artifact of the 1830s, but having it focused on the Irish is because they were the largest immigrant group. Tens of thousands were now arriving by this time. Such a fraught moment that St. Pat's was actually surrounded with a brick wall to protect itself from anti-Irish mobs who would threaten the church and would threaten the congregation inside. And that wall still stands. So when yeah. you when you walk by old St. Patrick's in Little Italy, consider why there's a big brick wall around it. Well, members of the ancient order of Hibernians would sort of guard, march up and down Prince Street armed, uh, looking for any of these unruly mobs. After you're done with our show, head over and listen to the New York Historical Society's Must Listen To podcast, For the Ages, hosted by David M. Rubenstein, interviewing the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. What were the ideas and events that shaped Lincoln's responses to slavery? Follow the arc of his ideological development from the beginning of the Civil War when he aimed to pursue a course of non-interference to the championing of slavery's destruction before the conflict ended. Edna Green Medford, professor of history at Howard University, juxtaposes the president's motivations for advocating freedom with the aspirations of African Americans themselves. The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the fate of the Jewish people explores the nuances of the Israeli-American relationship extending far into the past. 
Author Walter Russell Mead examines the connections between their political history and the impacts of evolving political affiliations in the United States and Israeli governments today. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So, Tom, as we head here into the momentous decade of the 1840s, the city is growing rapidly, but things are growing a lot more tense, you know, here between the Irish, in particular, the Irish Catholics and pretty much everyone else. Right. And this this first group that came over, we're going to just refer to them as the first wave of Irish immigration. That would be quickly dwarfed by what would follow from 1845 through the 1850s, and that was because of a disaster of epic proportions that caused widespread suffering back in Ireland. Lots of starvation, lots of disease, and changed the economy of Ireland. And this, of course, is the story of the Great Famine, or as it's commonly referred to as the Irish Potato Famine. And it was so devastating because people were coming from an economy that was sort of surrounded and dependent upon potatoes. That's right. Yeah, much of rural Ireland was so poor um, up to this point that they only grew, and many of them only ate and sustained themselves off of potatoes, which is really hard to imagine now, you know. But the economy was very primitive outside of the big city areas 
There were pastures that had been previously used for cattle and other crops that had been replaced by this time by potato farming. And 40% of the Irish population lived off both, you know, uh, literally or economically, potatoes. So th- the crop supported about 3 million people in Ireland. So when they first started noticing that there might be a problem with the potato crop, it was something that caused a panic. So when did they first notice the problem? Like, what year did it first arise? Well, the disease that caused the crop failure, the blight, um, probably started in Mexico and then passed up to the eastern United States, where it ruined the potato crop in 1844. And then it crossed over the Atlantic by ship and actually spread around other parts of Europe as well. It spread all over northern northern Europe, like in the Netherlands, in France, and Belgium. But those economies were not so centered around the potatoes, so they weren't really hit as hard. So Ireland had less crop diversity than other places. Right. That is an understatement. Like, they really... The the potato was almost the only crop that was being grown in a huge part of the country. So when farmers headed into their fields to collect their crop in October of 1845... They realized that they had lost between one-third and one-half of the crop. Wow. And remember, this is the backbone of that whole agrarian economy. So many were actually able to avoid starvation and complete ruin that first year because of various charities and the, and the church and government actions. However, the big fear was what was to happen the next year because they weren't able to properly sow the crop for the next year, and the blight did not disappear So already in 1845, the exodus had begun from Ireland to other places, um, other places around Europe and to North America, to Canada, but then, of course, to the United States. I'm imagining then that unlike these earlier waves of immigration, that this seems like it was just whole families that came over. Well, whole families would wind up in the United States, but they didn't all come over at once because, remember, we're talking about an economy that had been devastated and very, very poor farmers. They didn't have money to, first of all, get down to Liverpool and then take a ship over to the United States. That was expensive. So, So those who came over usually sent one person from the family. This was usually the the person who was deemed the most likely to find employment once he or she arrived in the United States. So maybe the most able-bodied young man or the daughter who could probably quickly find a domestic job. The money was cobbled together for the passage. They made the trek down to a port city in Ireland where they would take a harrowing trip over to Liverpool and in Liverpool wait for the next passage that they could afford to North America. Again, some went to Canada, but most into New York. Now, fortunately, at least during this period, there were a lot of jobs available because all these grand projects in New York City were being built. And they knew about that, right? Especially as... People made this harrowing trip, which took between four and seven weeks, sometimes eight weeks, because these ships were relying upon the wind. So once a member of the family succeeded in making it over, and, you know, as Tyler Anbinder details in his book City of Dreams, the adventure over was all 
almost always a harrowing journey because we're talking about poor passengers who slept in deplorable conditions, who had almost nothing to eat, uh, especially in the early years uh, before laws and reforms were passed, and had to withstand, you know, many, many weeks of not just boredom, but very unsafe conditions on these ships that were absolutely filthy. We'll spare you the details here, but there were many people who didn't even make the journey over because, say, there was a lice outbreak, and the lice led to open wounds, which led to infections, which led to, you know, um, coming down with typhoid or some other, some other disease, which led to the death of thousands of passengers, sometimes on the ships, but often once they arrived and were quarantined, in North America. And that led to the description of some of these arriving ships as, quote, coffin ships, because so many people um, became ill on the voyage over that many just didn't make it. So an arduous journey for all. Luckily, most survived the journey and Mm -hmm. arrived in New York Harbor. And what would they... What would greet them here? Well, they would first pass through a medical examination or in the early years on Staten Island, and then they would proceed to docks throughout lower Manhattan, where the situation was totally, you know, crowded and chaotic, and they would often be greeted by people called runners who were trying to scam them. Now, imagine how exhausted they are. You know, they're getting off of this ship and, and people are racing up to them and they're, they're promising them jobs, they're promising them lodging, you know, and of course they're taking some kind of crazy markup on the cost of the lodge or the placement for the job. If they're even providing a job or a lodging at all, people were getting scammed left and right as soon as they arrived. Well, the lucky ones knew people here, but for most, you didn't know who to trust when you got off the boats. Right, and the city understood that this was a real problem. So in 1855, they transformed Castle Clinton, which was a performance hall, the theater at the southern tip of the island, sort of connected to Battery Park by a land bridge. They transformed it into Castle Garden, an immigration center. And by doing so, they at least, you know, gave people a self-contained place to pass through, uh, to go through the customs process and the examinations and keep those runners at bay, or at least off in Battery Park. This building, remarkably, is still there today in Battery Park, reverted to its original fort form. Right. Greatly scaled back. (laughs) Very scaled back. So yes, you know, in all, due to this horrible famine, about one million people emigrated from Ireland to countries outside of the UK, mostly in North America, from 1846 until 1851. And about one million people are estimated to have perished back in Ireland due to starvation or to diseases that were brought about by the famine. So the ones that left and arrived in New York Harbor, although we know of some of the disparaging conditions which awaited them, those people were actually considered fortunate compared to those back home. Yes, and back to your earlier point about families coming over. Many of the single members of the families who came over and found those first jobs saved up money to then send back to Ireland so that their siblings and their parents could come and join them. But it was often a very slow process as families saved up enough money to rebuild their family structure on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, I mentioned five points 
earlier, and mm-hmm. I know a great many settled here, but this wasn't the only place in New York, did they? No, especially as thousands more came in the 1850s. You know, obviously they couldn't all fit into Five Points. Mm-hmm. The majority initially packed into the first, fourth, and sixth wards. So those are the neighborhoods in the southern tip of Manhattan, um, around Five Points, like Mm -hmm. you were talking about, and also around South Street Seaport, in the seaport area and around the docks. Mm -hmm. So those were the most popular neighborhoods because they were also the cheapest. But they often settled in blocks with others from their geographical place of origin, which is not very surprising. Yeah, that's natural. Right. So those, say, who were coming from around Cork might have all settled in the same area together. So so there was a connection already and kind of a built-in support system. But there were little Irish towns all over the place, right? That there were like concentrations of Irish immigrants settled everywhere. And not just in Manhattan. There was an Irish town across the East River in today's Vinegar Hill section mm-hmm. of Brooklyn. And meanwhile, many Irish women who took domestic jobs then lived with the families for whom they worked. So that allowed them to live all over the city. And men who took jobs in building and construction and big projects that took them outside of the city, well, many of them decided to settle in those spots. A perfect example of this is the Croton Aqueduct. As it was being built through Westchester County, there would be little Irish enclaves that would be developed there, that are still there today, that developed into real towns. Yes, and then into the 1850s, as the railroads were being developed and constructed, the same thing happened, you know, as the railroad tracks were being laid and moved westward, well, at big settlements along the way, it would be Irish settlers who helped build those settlements and who would set up residence there as well. All, you know, all of the big cities along the eastern seaboard also had Irish neighborhoods. So the Irish settled in Boston, in Philadelphia, in Baltimore. Now, in the decade preceding the Great Famine, in the 1830s, there were 270,000 Irish immigrants who arrived in the United States. In the 1840s, remember the the famine hit in 1845, Mm -hmm. there were 780,000, so about three times that number. That is so many people. And in the 1850s, there were 914,000, so... Nearly a million people immigrated from Ireland to the United States in the 1850s alone. Many pouring through New York City and all these other major cities, and many of them staying in those places. And these hundreds of thousands of people would get jobs in construction or in domestic service. I mean, by 1870, 40% of Irish-born women in New York worked in domestic service. And they would send their money back to Ireland and keep the cycle going. And they would do that, by the way, by going to places like the Emigrant Industrial Savings Bank down on Chambers Street, which opened in 1851. And it was banks and other organizations like this that provided not just, you know, savings accounts, but a means of transferring money back to the homeland. And it wasn't just banks. You know, there were other organizations, even schools. There was a parochial school system that had been set up for Catholics by the 1840s. And colleges such as Fordham, which was founded as St. John's College in 1841, and St. Francis Xavier, which opened on West 17th Street in 1847. So already you see these organizations 
that aided in Irish assimilation were starting to be formed and put in place in the 1840s. Well, and enduring organizations, many of these still exist and are vital places that you can visit today. But it wasn't, of course, all blue skies and sunshine. As you mentioned, there was this nativist uh, Mm -hmm. backlash to the Irish arrivals and even a party that was formed for native-born Americans in order to fight any foreign influences in the United States government, a party called, quote, the American Party. And this was a group of people who strictly put America and Americans first. And they intended to kick out any foreign-born nationals out of public positions, you know? The party was only open to U.S.-born Americans, nobody born in another country, nor was it open to Catholics. And they were often referred to as the know-nothings because they'd say they'd, they know nothing about the party if they were asked about it. Today, we know that they know nothing. <laughs> or knew nothing. Or Let's knew call nothing. them the yeah. knew-nothings. <laughs> They did have successes as a party in the 1850s and even got Millard Fillmore nominated for the 1856 presidential election. He had already been president of the United States from the Whig Party, but the Know Nothings were able to run as a third party in the 1856 presidential election in which Democrat James Buchanan won. He beat out both Fillmore and Republican Fremont of California. The Know Nothing Party itself only existed from 1854 to 1855. And this nativist fervor, although aimed at all foreigners, and of course there's Germans and people of other nationalities Mm -hmm. immigrating to New York, but because the Irish were the largest group, it was even more focused upon them. And if you consider that, you know, he was running in 1856, the Irish were arriving in the 1850s at such large numbers that by 1855, more than one-fourth of New York City's population and Brooklyn's population had been born in Ireland. And that included 86% of the city's laborers and 74% of the city's domestic servants. But the next few decades, New York's famed Gilded Age would prove to be very turbulent ones for this group of immigrants. We'll get to that story after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. 
I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. And now back to the show. On July 16th, 1863, after three full days of rioting, Archbishop John Hughes, who is perhaps the most famous and most powerful Irish Catholic in America at this period, stepped out of his balcony from his home in Midtown and said, quote, I have been hurt by the reports that you are rioters. You cannot imagine that I could hear these things without being pained grievously. If you are Irishmen and the papers say the rioters are all Irishmen, then I also am an Irishman, but not a rioter for I am a man of peace. His words came a little bit too late, came at the end of these horrific days of violence in New York, the most horrid period in New York City history. I am referring, of course, to the Civil War draft riots, which began on July 13th, 1863. Riots that were caused by the Civil War Draft Conscription Act, which unfairly burdened working-class people, because the wealthier could buy out of the draft meaning that the poor were more likely to be sent to the front lines in the war with the Confederacy and, of course, more likely to be killed. And since a majority of the working class in New York were immigrants and Irish, they were the ones that were most affected by this. Now, many Irish New Yorkers actually fought with great distinction in the Civil War. On the flip side, many Irish New Yorkers led this great swath of violence that caused millions of dollars of damage and killed 120 people, particularly targeting black New Yorkers. You know, this was part of this long gestating tension between these two communities. And we have an entire podcast on this subject on New York and the Civil War draft riots. If you'd like to hear more about this difficult topic, that's episode number 127. In the second half of the 19th century, the Irish, and in particular the Irish Catholics, did make great progress into New York society, or as was the saying of the day, they went from being shanty Irish to lace curtain Irish. There was still immense Irish immigration into the United States, and in one decade in particular, the 1880s, there were over 600,000 Irish that would arrive in that decade. In the 1880s? Yes, just in the 1880s. So what was really changing then? If they're going from the shanties to the lace curtain, which, I, which I'm assuming means they're moving on up. Yes. Uh, one of the big differences is that there were a lot of Irish, but there were a lot of everybody else coming over as well. The number of total immigrants during this period also increased. Immigrants from Italy, Russia, Eastern Europe, and Asia. Uh-huh. So the city's becoming more cosmopolitan. Right. There's a, there's a greater mix of people. There have been decades of Irish already in New York. So there are greater possibilities for the Irish at this time to assimilate into this largely white Anglo class. So I take it then job opportunities are improving? It isn't just construction jobs and domestic servants? Oh, there's still a lot of those, keep in mind. But you have these settled Irish organizations, and you have many individual prominent Irish businessmen by this time, and of course many people in government. 
on a practical level, it was simply easier for the Irish in the later 19th century to assimilate into New York's Gilded Age society. Most of them could speak English, unlike the Italians. Unlike African Americans, their skin color allowed them to kind of move into these more established sectors of society. They were even Christians, unlike the Jewish people coming over from Eastern Europe. And the Protestant Irish, of course, even had more access to assimilate and certainly did so. So it seems like things are getting easier for them. Still not easy, just easier. Perhaps the greatest symbol of this period of Irish progress was the construction of St. Patrick's Cathedral. The one in Midtown. The one in Midtown, the brand new one, which, you know, work began in 1858, took a few decades to really finish the whole thing. But by that point, it was smack dab on Fifth Avenue around all the wealthiest homes of the city. Okay, so they have more economic power. Their religion has gone center stage here on Mm -hmm. Fifth Avenue. I'm assuming that that they've also gained political power. Oh, sure. And the... Thanks, of course, to a very powerful tool that we've, that we've talked about on the show many times before, the Democratic political machine Tammany Hall, which recognized fairly early on the sheer number of Irish immigrants could help get Democratic agendas passed. Because they were voting. Yeah, they At were. At least the men were voting. Right. Uh, and the Irish would help steer the decision making of Tammany Hall eventually. Under, of course, legendary leadership, if you will, of William Boss Tweed, with promise of supporting the Irish community, Tammany Hall would give them preferential treatment for jobs. There would be this, you know, suspicious naturalization process that would be used to get these newly arriving Irish onto the polls so that they Mm -hmm. could go vote. Um, They would also use Irish gangs sometimes to intimidate people at the polls. Okay, so those are all negatives, but but Tammany Hall was also a force for good, right? For assimilation. It did provide some social benefit too, right? Upward mobility, some job security. It was mostly beneficial for both Tammany Hall and uh, for the Irish community here. However, it would be kind of hard to manage sometimes. The downfall of Tweed really began in 1871, starting with a struggle between the two Irish communities that I mentioned earlier, the Protestants and the Catholics. They were still having great and sometimes violent disagreements. In the summer of 1870, Irish Protestants marched up to the Upper West Side in celebration of the famous Battle of the Boyne, marching with orange sashes. This was a badge of prize if you were an Irish Protestant, but they would be marching through Irish Catholic neighborhoods. And by the time they got to the Upper West Side, they were all out fighting in a local park. So the following year, the city banned the event and Boss Tweed jumped on that decision. But then the parade went on anyway, and it was a complete chaotic, violent, horrible experience in which 60 people were killed. And that was in 1871 the year that Boss Tweed was exposed as a scam. However, even with Tweed locked away in jail on Ludlow Street, the Irish would still support and in many ways control Tammany Hall. Oh, absolutely. The next two bosses of Tammany Hall, in fact, Honest John Kelly and Richard Croker would both be Irish, and they would pretty much cement the group as practically an Irish organization. 
And this, this influence in Tammany Hall then also gave them a lot of control when it came to job hirings, right? Yeah. And city contracts and city positions, say, within the police department. Uh, the police department uh, is a very good example of, of an organization where the Irish were able to thrive in. I mean, as early as the 1840s, there had been a strong Irish presence, but even well into the 20th century. I read one report, Tom, in the New York Times that in 1940, there were still 30 to 40 40% of the police force were Irish or, or had an Irish background. So by the end of the 19th century, we have a full gamut of Irish-American representation. Yes, we've mentioned corrupt politicians and gangs. But, and violence. And violence, but you also had prominent journalists like Nellie Bly. You had military heroes and even presidents and especially sports heroes. The sport of boxing in the late 19th century was the big stars of the sport were almost entirely Irish. Living up to their nickname, of course, the Fighting Irish. The Fighting Irish. Oh, that's right. Fightin'. Fightin'. Well, in the first decade of the 20th century, there would still be nearly 400,000 people immigrating from Ireland. So things hadn't really slowed down. Things would change dramatically in terms of numbers. After the passage of the Emergency Quota Act of 1921, which drastically cut back on immigration from Ireland and other countries, because what it did was it restricted immigration annually to 3% of the total amount of that population who lived in the United States according to the 1910 census. And this was aimed for all immigrant groups, not just Ireland. That's right. There were some exceptions made, but, you know, after World War I, there was great political turmoil in Europe um, and around the world. And there was also a lot of economic insecurity here in the United States. So for many different reasons, uh, Congress moved to pass this new quota system, thus sort of closing the open-door policy that had let hundreds of thousands of immigrants arrive every year. But by this time in the 1920s, you know, the Irish had nearly fully integrated into the city and also into the country. By 1910, already, there were more people of Irish descent living in New York City than in Dublin. That's an unbelievable statistic. Unfortunately, we're not in this show going to be able to talk about all the different aspects of Irish life in the 1920s, we, like the Irish vaudeville, the Irish mob. Irish politicians like Governor Al Smith, uh, Mayor William O'Dwyer, who had been born in Ireland. Culturally, you know, the Ireland's prominence just in the songs of Tin Pan Alley. Uh, for example, the song When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. Mm -hmm came out in 1912, or the different ways that, you know, Irish folk melodies were integrated into popular culture. But let's just say that by the 1920s and the passage of this new Immigration Act, the Irish were firmly established as New Yorkers, assimilated into the city and integrated into the fabric of the city with neighborhoods that stretched all over the city. You know, they had left... Um, by the 1920s, the old neighborhoods, the wards that we talked about before, down by five points, you know, moving into new neighborhoods like Hell's Kitchen and Chelsea because it was over by the docks and there were a lot of jobs over by the docks. 
as well as Upper Manhattan. Meanwhile, over in Brooklyn, you know, Williamsburg and Greenpoint, areas in today's Park Slope and Bay Ridge were increasingly Irish and around the Navy Yard. Also in the Southern Bronx, Mott Haven and Morsania. Well, but even um, Woodlawn... Mm-hmm. is often called Little Ireland. There were a lot of Little Irelands <laughs> <laughs> around the city. Sorry, I waited this long for an Irish dilt. <laughs> and also in Queens, of course, Astoria, Long Island City, many, many more Irish neighborhoods had been established here. But of course, after World War II, uh, the Irish, like so many other assimilated groups living in New York, would see large numbers of their population leave for the suburbs and other parts of the country. And that is a trend that we still see continuing to today. Even take, for example, these two statistics. In 1980, there were 647,000 New Yorkers of Irish descent. And 26 years later, in the census of 2006, there were only 441,000. So there had been a drop of about 200,000 People. So today's Irish population of New York comprises about 5% of the total population. Still obviously very sizable, and it seems like nearly everybody comes back into town for the annual St. Patrick's Day Parade. Still held every year in the middle of March uh, through blizzard or sunny weather. (laughs) We're recording this actually um, just a day after a blizzard on March 15th, 2017 and right before St. Patrick's Day. So hopefully they will have removed some of the snow from Fifth Avenue. (laughs) Speaking of which, Greg, you mentioned the origins of the St. Patrick's Day parade. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to point out that those first parades were routed to pass by the front of old St. Patrick's. That was the intention, to pass Mm -hmm. by, and you could have the archbishop on the front, sort of a viewing station in front of St. Patrick's. So obviously when uh, the new St. Patrick's opened uh, toward the end of the 19th century, they had to reroute the parade to go up Fifth Avenue. So I just think it's fun to think about the old parade actually going through... Little Italy. Little Italy. (laughs) Or the area of today's Little Italy. Now, we've mentioned a lot of uh, places that you can visit that celebrate Irish heritage, but I just want to make one quick note of the Irish Hunger Memorial, which is in Battery Park City, which marks and honors and commemorates this massive immigration that happened starting in the 1840s. It's a haunting and moving memorial. For further reading on this subject, I would highly recommend uh, the book that I mentioned before, City of Dreams by Tyler Anbinder. He really brings to life not just the Irish passage to the U.S. and what they, what they encountered upon arrival, but other immigrant groups as well. It's a great read. I also recommend the book The Irish Way, Becoming American in the Multi-Ethnic City by James Barrett. This one came out a few years ago, but it's one of my favorite on this particular topic. We just want to give a big thank you to our patrons on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We have lots of extra audio on there, as we said earlier in this particular show, and lots of other exciting goodies, including exclusive merchandise for those who support us there on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And you can also join us in the street, not on parade days. Um, We avoid walking tours on parade days, 
But on other days, join us uh, in a group walking tour or a private walking tour at BoweryBoysWalks.com. We have new walking tours all over the city covering topics like neighborhood histories, Greenwich Village, Tribeca, Lower East Side, a new Grand Central Terminal tour, and in a new partnership we have with the James Hotel just north of Madison Square. That is a very special intimate look at the history of Madison Square. So check out all of these. Join us in the street or book a private tour for your family, company, or organization at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.